How do you get a people to breed? When I lived in Japan, the problem of a shrinking population was readily apparent. I was there as an English teacher, and the husband of one of my older students was forced into retirement at the age of 60, but at the same time was not allowed to start drawing his pension until age 65. Consequently, he had to find a part-time job to make ends meet during the intervening five years of his life. This is just one of the measures Japan has had to adopt to deal with the problem of a shrinking number of young people that can no longer financially support the growing number of old people. And this problem is starting to affect nations all over the world nowadays. It's not just Japan anymore. And it includes the United States. I'm actually a contributor to this situation as Rachel and I made the decision not to have kids. I mean, the financial burden is considerable and I've always felt that there are plenty of children born already who are in need of parents, so why not adopt rather than have your own? So I got the snip snip. But nevertheless, right or wrong, the decisions of people like me have brought the United States down to a record low fertility rate of 1.73 children per mother on average. That's below replacement rate, meaning our population, if it continues to grow, is going to do so not by giving birth, but by living longer. Or by immigration. But the politics that we're seeing today is making that a little bit fraught. In any case, it won't be long before we find ourselves in Japan's situation forcing retirees to work part-time at the 7-Eleven until Social Security kicks in. That's if there's any of it left at all for us by then. Now, if you are concerned about global overpopulation, you might cheer such statistics like this, thinking, you know, fewer people here makes up for huge families elsewhere in developing countries, etc., etc. I used to think that way too. However, the fact of the matter is, and I was quite surprised to learn this, Almost everywhere in the world, family size has now stabilized just above replacement rate. Even a place like Bangladesh came all the way down to 2.13 births per mother in 2015. Meanwhile, the global average that same year came in at 2.49. Now, you might look at these statistics and say, great, or that's terrible, depending on your perspective. But one place that looked at numbers like these and said, that's catastrophic was Nazi Germany. As we heard last time, they were facing a severe population problem after the decimation of World War I. They desperately needed soldiers to fight the next war, but they were frustrated by a declining fertility rate, which had been plunging all throughout the interwar period of the Weimar Republic. We heard the figure 2.26 births per mother at the end of World War I, which was terrible already at the time, but then it continued to decline, and then it bottomed out at an all-time low of 1.58 births per mother in 1933. Now, 1933 was the same year that Hitler rose to power, and he intended to turn that number around. But how do you do that? How do you get a population to breed? We're going to find out how the Nazis tried and whether, in the end, it did anything at all. That's what we're talking about today. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex.
History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our Patreon patron, Andre Solo, for making this episode possible. Hey, wait a minute, what's this? Another deep dive episode back-to-back released on the same day? What are you, crazy? Apparently so. Yes, crazy. Since this show is still new, we wanted to really pack our offerings full, so we're pulling out all the stops for you today, listeners. So yes, along with the previous episode of Real Life Handmaid's Tale, today is a double episode. It's kind of like in the 90s when a band would release a two-CD set, and you're like, whoa, that's so much music! Wait, what's a CD, you ask? Well, (laughs) eh, never mind. Anyway, in this episode, our super deep-dive series, Sex in the Third Reich, continues with How to Breed a Master Race. Of all the challenges faced by the new Nazi regime, the one that concerns us here is the fertility rate, which was continuing to decline before their very eyes. This could not be more alarming for German nationalists like the early Nazis. Historian Amy Beth Carney writes, A two-child system that is an average of two children per marriage could in no way sustain the German population quantitatively, let alone qualitatively. Such a system would lead, according to prominent government statistician Friedrich Bergdorfer, to the extinction of the German people in approximately three centuries. He calculated that merely conserving the current population would require a birth rate of 3.4 children per marriage, or 3.1 if illegitimate births were also taken into account. This fight against a birth decline was a dire one, with Bergdorfer even suggesting that a folk without youth would be a folk without hope and a folk without a future. It was imperative to the Nazis that the fertility rate increase. Remember, racism is the standard mindset of the times, okay? So so the idea of supplementing your population with immigrants, for example, is not going to fly at the time, not only in Germany, but in many other countries at the time. But we'll stick with Germany because that's what we're talking about. The Nazis saw this as a catastrophe. It was a prophecy of doom. It was imperative that the fertility rate increase, and yet it kept on sliding. By the time the Nazis rose to power in 1933, the fertility rate, as we've said, had plunged all the way down to a record low of 1.58 births per mother, which is well below replacement rate. That's less than the U.S. today and nearly as bad as Japan today. I mean, that just plain sucks. This was apocalyptic in the eyes of Nazi nationalists. If they couldn't get the fertility rate back up, they wouldn't have enough soldiers for the next war. And even if they did, they'd disappear just from shrinkage. Their thousand-year Reich would barely see 300 years. And it all came down to sex. They had to get Germans to breed again. There was simply no two ways about it. So how do you do such a thing? Well, if you ask me how to do it, well, I would say... I don't know, maybe free porn for everybody and let's have a festival, you know, wild orgies, key parties, giant images of good old-fashioned fertility goddesses, all-you-can-eat Viagra buffets, and let's get freaky in the park. But that wasn't the Nazis' style. They certainly were not free-loving hippies, much to everyone's disappointment, I'm sure. 
They were more like lab technicians, planning in detail how to breed the next generation of Germans. So how did they do it? Well, we heard a few of the ways last time. For example, we heard that they awarded the Mutterkreuz Medal to prolific mothers, and they set up Lebensborn maternity hospitals for Aryan mothers to give birth in. They also encouraged SS officers to trade in their current wives for more genetically fit Aryan models while keeping mistresses on the side. They actively encouraged that. They also targeted male homosexuals who were not pulling their weight in terms of sowing the national seed, re-educating those who could be re-educated while shipping those who couldn't be off to concentration camps or worse. And those were just a few of the ways, but there's a whole lot more to be said about their grand laboratory experiment. We're going to hear about their program in great detail, but first we'll take a short break and we'll be back after this. Hey, Jen. Hi, Jenny. What did Cleopatra and Mark Antony, Germanicus and Agrippina the Elder, and Atalanta and Hippomenes have in common? They all had a lot of sex, and some of them were really fertile. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah! And we tell their stories in our podcast, Ancient History Fangirl. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And in our podcast, we tell tall tales and true stories of the ancient world, misbehaving emperors, poison assassins, star-crossed lovers, and more. We go back to the original sources, dig into the latest archaeology, and get geeky about military history and mythology to bring you the ancient world like you've never heard it before. We tell the stories of famous figures like Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, and people you may never have heard of, like Fulvia, the ancient Roman gang leader, and Locusta, the poison assassin to Roman emperors. Check out ancienthistoryfangirl.com or find us at Ancient History Fangirl wherever you get your podcasts. And now, The History of Sex presents this. Are you ready, Elsa? I don't know, Hans. Shouldn't we use a a condom? Hold it right there. Reichsminister Goebbels, don't touch those rubbers. Why not? We need to get the population up, so let's get it up together. Come on, Hans. Let's give a child to the Fuhrer. Now we know, and knowing's half the battle. All right, we're back. So how did the Nazis attempt to raise the fertility rate? Well, one way was by banning contraception and abortion. Now, that may seem like a no-brainer when you're trying to get the population up, but I mean, man, what a contrast from the era just before. I mean, what happened to that independent Weimar woman in control of her own choices that we heard about in the last episode? Her body was now seen as a state resource. The choice was no longer hers. It was made for her, and the answer was no. Unless, of course, she was deemed racially undesirable, in which case abortion was just fine. The Nazis had no problem with that. But for Aryan women, the answer was absolutely no. And I can't imagine the number of fudged medical records and genealogical trees that were handed in, sweat beating off your brow, hoping desperately that the authorities didn't notice so that you could keep or not keep your baby as the case may be. Some, such as the mentally disabled, even faced forced sterilization. 
in order that the Nazis could get the kind of next generation that they were after. Another way that they encouraged the birth rate to rise was the way that they indoctrinated young people. The female equivalent of the Hitler Youth was called the League of German Maidens. It's also called the BDM. It's an acronym for what it is in German. League of German Maidens. These young girls, while not explicitly told to go out and get pregnant, these young girls were urged to, quote, give a child to the Fuhrer, meaning to bear a child out of wedlock for the fatherland. Now, this wasn't explicit in its, like, literature, but the nudge-nudge was there. We have reports of it from women who were girls at the time and said that, you know, people told them this. And we see the fruits of that nudge-nudge. Historian Michael Cotter reports that after the Nuremberg Youth Rally in 1936, some 900 girls returned home carrying a child. And in only half the cases was the father known. What's more, most of these girls were not ashamed of this. They were proud. They were serving their country, they said. And if their parents gave them guff about it, they could threaten to denounce them to the authorities. Imagine that little family spat. It was kind of a weird little inversion of the loss of power that women saw during the Nazi state. Well, these young girls were actually able to seize some power because their parents didn't want them to do this, but they saw this as the place where they could defy their parents and assert themselves as part of a new world, a brave new world. And for them, being part of the brave new world meant being a mother. That's a very different kind of woman than in the Weimar era. This one found her power, if you can call it that, in motherhood. There were other ways still that the Nazis encouraged the fertility rate to increase. Some of them a little less juicy, a little less sexy perhaps, but maybe a little more sensible, a legalistic way. They issued loans to married couples, which were forgiven at a rate of one quarter of the loan per child. So in other words, one child gets 25% of your debt forgiven, two children gets 50% forgiven, three, 75%. And by the time you have child number four, which is the goal that the Nazis were actually seeking, by that time, 100% is forgiven. It's free money. You just get that money. That was a very clever way that they tried to encourage the fertility rate to increase. The 1933 Law for the Promotion of Marriages, remember 1933 is when the Nazis assumed power, so they did this right away. This was important to them. This law, which enacted this policy with the loans, came with strings attached, however. It was only for couples where the woman left her job in order to marry, and the motivation there is they wanted jobs for men to be freed up. So the woman left her job, that means men could be in that position. Hmm. Furthermore, you and your spouse had to be racially fit. Well, of course you did. We're talking about the Nazis after all, aren't we? But this meant not only that you had to be Aryan, but it also meant you had to be free of any congenital defects. And to prove it, you had to submit to medical examinations. I mean, imagine that loan application process. You know, you're in the bank and sign here, sign here, and drop your shorts, turn your head and cough. <coughs> Congratulations, sir, you qualify. Thank you very much. That's crazy. Another thing the Nazis did was they worked to reduce the stigma against illegitimate children bearing a child out of wedlock. 
And this was a big deal in Germany at the time. It was highly frowned upon to have a child out of wedlock. Those girls that we just mentioned who were doing that, they were radical. They were very forward-looking in their outlook, being able to change their mindset like that. For most people who had grown up in earlier eras, this was quite frowned upon. But Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, worked to reduce this stigma against it. For example, if he heard any of his SS officers speak poorly of an unwed mother, he demanded to see that officer's genealogical tree and examined it for traces of illegitimacy to show that he might not have been born if it had not been for illegitimate unions back in his ancestry. They also allowed SS officers to secretly acknowledge illegitimate children. So if they couldn't bear to state publicly that, yes, this was their child, they could put it on record secretly with the SS. Himmler really pushed hard for births among his SS officers. And even, get this, each SS unit was expected to have something called a storm cradle. <laughs> storm like stormtrooper, I guess, and cradle, just what it sounds like. This was a communal cradle that any officer in the unit could use for children he happened to have, and this thing would be decorated with swastikas and runes. <laughs> just, the image of that is just crazy. I mean, you don't think of this when you think of the Nazis, much less the SS, right? And you only think of them as just hard-line killers. And they had storm cradles. It's, it's nuts. The SS was really pushed to have children, partly to create sort of an elite of the purest of the pure Aryans to serve as almost like a new aristocracy for the new Germany to come. But it was also kind of a controlled population. They knew because of the genealogical trees that you had to submit when you volunteered to become part of the SS, they knew that everyone that was accepted was pure Aryan stock. And so they could control the population and get exactly the kind of children that they wanted. The wider population was a little harder to verify, so it's hard to know if they ever intended to extend these sorts of policies to the full population. I expect they probably would have had they won the war, but that's up to you. So in all of these ways, the Nazi regime encouraged people to have more children. But they went beyond that even, because the, the, the real problem is population level more than just children. And so they even were willing to go beyond encouraging people to breed to taking in those already born. Not just the illegitimate children that I was talking about, but something much grimmer. They kidnapped children. I'm not kidding. They kidnapped children from other countries, especially Poland, for example. See, here's the deal. If a child was Aryan-looking, they would be stolen away, often in full sight of their parents, on the off chance that they might be descended from Germans who had emigrated however long before. And if they turned out to be of good Aryan stock, they would then be raised in special orphanages and Germanized. If not, they'd be sent off to work camps or executed on the spot. Pretty grim. Now, a final way that they addressed the population problem is one that takes a little bit of explaining because it's kind of counterintuitive what they did. The Nazis cracked down on prostitutes. Now, 
if you want as many babies as possible, why would you be down on prostitutes? That doesn't make sense on the face of it. I would think you would want to set up red light districts in every city and maternity hospitals for all and sundry, and maybe even special state orphanages for any children born that can't be kept from these prostitutes. In a world like The Handmaid's Tale, where you have no wombs to spare, I would think that you would make the prostitute a national hero. That isn't what they did, though. Ostensibly, the reason that the Nazis cracked down on prostitutes was to prevent the spread of venereal disease, and this carried on an earlier health policy from the Weimar Republic, so it served as a kind of a good cover because everybody was kind of signed up for it already. But whereas the Weimar policy was aimed at general social welfare, this was just one more gear in the Nazis' racial hate machine. Because you see, the problem with prostitutes is they are difficult to control. You don't know who might be polluting the blood of those babies. And that's why prostitutes were a problem. However, the Nazis couldn't just ship prostitutes off to work camps. They represented potential fertile wombs that could be converted to proper Aryan baby-making machines with sufficient indoctrination. So in a classic move that we'll see the Nazis do again and again in this series, when you can't get rid of the problematic parties involved, blame conveniently shifts to those that you can, a people that doesn't fit your racist master plan and which already has a long tradition of being blamed for everything under the sun. The Jews. Anna Clark writes, Hitler appealed to their fears, meaning the fears of the people, by depicting Jews as procurers who would, quote, poison the health of the national body, unquote, through syphilis. He denounced prostitution as, quote, the Jewification of our spiritual life and mammonization of our mating instinct, unquote, thus tapping into people's alienation from fast-paced commodity capitalism. So the Nazis further vilified Jews in their crackdown on prostitution. Now, the crackdown itself did not work very well, surprise, surprise, and the official position wavered, and by 1936, the state was actually sponsoring military brothels for use by soldiers in order to prevent them from turning to homosexuality. Quite, quite a 180, but that's what happened. Now, speaking of homosexuality, they cracked down on male homosexuals as well to ensure that the nation's manly seed found its way to a fertile receptacle. Curiously, though, in the early years, there were gay men in the highest echelons of the Nazi ranks. For example, the leader of the Sturmabteilung, or stormtroopers, was Ernst Röhm, who was about as openly gay as you could get without coming right out and saying it. And we'll have much more to say about that in a future episode. For now, let's sum up. How did the Nazis attempt to get people to breed more? Well, their directive was... For anyone considered racially desirable, bear as many good Aryan children as possible, with anyone deemed racially fit, don't use condoms, don't have abortions, and for men, don't waste your sexual energies on prostitutes or other men. And as we've heard, they also used economic incentives, social pressures, and indoctrination to manipulate their people into producing the master race. That was how they tried to get people to breed. Now, with all of that as their goal, did they succeed? Well, no, not really. <laughs> it's actually incredibly difficult to get a population to breed more. Lots of governments have tried it, and it's just plain hard. 
the Nazis were probably the most successful government to date at managing the sex lives of their citizens, and yet they only managed to raise the fertility rate slightly. From that record low of 1.58 children per mother in 1933, the Nazis, at best, only managed to raise that to 2.4 in 1940. And even then, it's difficult to suss out whether this was due to their programs or to other factors. Most likely, the cause was just recovering prosperity after the worst years of the Great Depression. It's possible, in fact, that the Nazi breeding program didn't have any appreciable impact at all. As historian Anna Clark puts it, The Nazis only partially succeeded in managing the sex lives of German citizens. Restricting contraception and abortion briefly raised the birth rate a little in the 1930s, but it soon fell back to the low level of the 1920s. And it gets more pathetic still. Not only did the Nazis fail to make a dent in the overall fertility rate, but even among their precious test population, the SS, on which they focused so many of their efforts and incentives and maternity hospital comforts, well, how well do you suppose they did with the SS? According to SS statistical yearbooks, their own records, in 1936, after three years of intensive effort, SS marriages produced only 1.5 births on average. That is less than the national record low. And it got worse year by year. The next year, in 1937, 1.2 births, and then 1.1 births the next year after that, in 1938. So why was the SS fertility rate even lower than the national average? Well, historian Amy Beth Carney notes that the majority of SS officers were university graduates and or nobility, and high education and social class are both associated with lower fecundity. Thus, SS fertility rates followed accordingly. In short, the pro-baby propaganda of the regime was simply drowned out by socioeconomic background. The most privileged, the most targeted, and the most indoctrinated subpopulation produced the worst fertility rate of all. The Nazi breeding program decisively failed. Wow, what the? <laughs> what? Well, why didn't the program work? Well, it's a bit of speculation, but there are several possible explanations. First of all, we can start with men. See, believe it or not, Many men do not simply go wild when open season is declared on women. Despite all the incentives, all the wink-winks, all the nudge-nudges, many Nazi men did not in fact have sex before or outside of marriage. The inertia of traditional morality remained strong, and the stigma against unwed mothers remained strong as well. People just don't change that easily. Now, perhaps that is not terribly surprising considering that Nazism did not survive past a single generation, however. Perhaps the second generation growing up with these ideas might have been more pliable, but we'll never know. The second reason that the program might have failed might be due to its limited scope. As we've seen, despite some nationwide initiatives, like the marriage incentive thing, for many points of the program, the focus really was on the SS and their wives and their mistresses. The procreation order banning unfecund officers from promotion only applied to the SS, and the comforts of the Lebensborn maternity hospitals were by and large for their wives and their mistresses. Now, if these initiatives were expanded to the entire nation so that 
everyone saw everyone else around them taking part and it came to feel abnormal not to have four or more children per family, well, maybe that might have swayed decisions more effectively. Maybe. Then again, considering the program's abject failure within the SS, it might have been equally disastrous writ large. We'll never know that either. And the final factor, which almost certainly frustrated the breeding program, was birth control. See, despite the ban on contraception and abortion, these things persisted underground. Once a population has access to reliable birth control, individual life decisions just almost always seem to trump ideology, and thus families continued to plan when and if to have children, albeit under the radar. Clark describes one Nazi's fury at this fact. Quote, Frustrated, Dr. Vollenweber blamed the rubber industry, which he blamed for trying to commit Volkermort. Now, what is Volkermort? It's not the name that must not be spoken. No, folk means people, mort means murder, so he means murder of a people, or in other words, genocide. Genocide of the Aryan race by condoms. You can just hear the pathetic frustration in that guy's words. Hmm. All of that, and in the end, the Nazis just failed miserably to raise the fertility rate. Now, it does make you wonder what they could have done differently. And had they approached the problem in another way, might they have succeeded? Maybe. I mean, one place to start is certainly how about not killing millions of your own people? Let's say that for starters. But above and beyond that, it's worth asking, it's at least fun to think about, what other policies might a nation, what policies might they enact to actually raise their fertility rate? In the end, I don't know. I turn it over to you, listener. What do you think? How can a nation effectively raise its fertility rate? And should we even try? You can share your thoughts on our Facebook page where we are at History of Sex Pod. I would love to hear your ideas on how to get it up. Wow, so how about that, folks? A double episode to start our super deep dive series, Sex in the Third Reich. I hope you are getting something new and fresh in this series. And speaking of getting fresh, we've got something titillating coming up for you. Nazi nudism. That's right. Nazi nudism. What the... what? It was a thing. As conservative as the Nazis were, they were not conservative about getting naked. Find out all about that and more this month in our lineup of brief episodes that I like to call short shorts. We'll also have an interview in there to spice things up. It's going to be good. And if that's not enough for you, well, fear not. Our super deep dive series, Sex in the Third Reich, will return every other month this year until we've looked at the era from nearly every perspective. We have a deep dive episode planned on what it was like to be a woman, what it was like to be a man, what it was like to be queer, and so on in the Nazi regime. We'll alternate each month with other topics to spice things up, but we've got plenty more Nazi sex coming your way this year. If you'd like to support what we're doing here, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's nothing more powerful for a new show than rating and reviewing. And we also do have a Patreon page at www.patreon.com 
forward slash BT Newberg. You can get some great perks, including a hand-drawn portrait drawn by me of you in the historical time period and culture of your choosing. There's plenty of examples that you can see on our website at historyofsexpod.com. So if you would like that, sign up to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash B-T-N-E-W-B-E-R-G. All right, that's it for today, folks. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.